quite like even. Uh, I thought it was important to note that these stories, I'm, I'm reading them for the first time. I'm just recording them as I'm reading them. Um, so any mistakes, any issues with pacing or anything uh, is on me. Um, but you can check out all these stories at Punk Noir magazine. Uh, they all came out yesterday as part of the Halloween special. Um, and I've just decided to read them as I'm doing it because the systems are down at my work. And I, I'm waiting for them to come back up. So thanks for listening and enjoy. Gas Station by Margot Sillings. As Penny held the gas pump, she felt a man approaching. She reached for her phone in her hoodie pocket as if her friend was physically there, like a hand to grab. She froze, realising Max was 604 miles away and could do not a damned thing to stop this man approaching. She started to feel it as her breathing changed, shallow and slow. She started to sweat. All of her body responded like muscle memory. The man got inches closer to her and asked if he could help fill her tank. She calmly said, nope, all good. Before she could take a breath, he said, I bet you are good. He inched even closer. She backed up, but the car stopped her. She was cornered. He grabbed for her shoulder and smiled, his touch damp, hot, thick. She dodged to the side, losing her footing on oil. He followed her to the car door, opening it for her. She looked around, noticing how isolated she was in this gas station. She reached for her phone again. It was buzzing, vibrating texts from Max. Penny pulled her phone out. The action spooked him. He walked backwards away from her car. He walked backwards so that he could keep looking at her with an expression that made her stomach churn. He got in his pickup truck and drove away, smiling at her. Penny felt nauseous, bile rising up in her throat, and then release. She got back into her car, locked the door, took a breath that turned into a cry when the fury washed over her. She watched as the man pulled away, and before she could process, she texted, telling Max all the details. Unformed sentences, emotional punctuation, tears streaming down her face. She was shaking too much to speak when he called. She raged on about every instance when a man had approached her like that, touched her, rubbed past her, luridly commented on her very existence as if it was theirs to comment on. These incidents happened always in public, in the open, where anyone could hear or see. Penny complained about it like there would be an answer Max could give her about why men do this. There wasn't. Max was silent. He let her sob and thunder. He asked her if she was safe. Where was she now? Max calmly took a breath and said one word. God damn it! Taking deep, meditative breaths to calm herself in rhythm with music she could feel but not hear. Penny drove back home and made her family a baked spaghetti casserole.
for supper. Dr. Ryan and the Presence on the Stairs by Lorraine Murphy Evelyn Ryan made a cup of tea and put her cat out. Taking her newspaper and mobile phone, she climbed the creaky staircase to bed. Living in the small but comfortable flat above the clinic was handy. Modest living a choice for the conservative family doctor. A doctor who prided herself on never providing family planning services of any description under any circumstance. Behind her, a stair creaked and she wobbled, scalding her hand with the tea. She hurried into her warm bedroom and closed her door, blowing on the emerging redness, then undressed, slipping a long cotton nightie over her head. There was no mirror in the room. Vanity had no place in a devout life. Kneeling on the white carpet, she joined her hands in prayer and closed her eyes. Hail Mary. Something crashed downstairs and she called Anne and her receptionist. Doctor, it's late. Anne, I believe there is someone in my flat. Will you stay on the line while I investigate? Doctor, I'm hanging up. Ring 999. No, Anne, I'm probably overreacting. Just stay on the line, please. Evelyn turned a wooden knob on her bedroom door into complete blackness. She was almost sure she left the light on. She flicked the switch and the bulb lit brightly before exploding, plunging the landing back into darkness. Doctor, what the fuck was that noise? Evelyn peered into the darkness when something moved, making her gasp. Doctor, go back to your room and lock the door. Now! Something lunged at her face from the blackness. She screamed from the pit of her stomach as it scratched her face. Salem. Oh, Anne, it's the cat. I thought I put him out. I must be going senile. Not a chance. You're the sharpest woman I know. Look, will I come over? How Evelyn wanted to say yes. Not at all, Anne. I will be fine. Returning to her knees, she composed herself and finished saying her prayers while Salem lay purring on the bed licking his black paws. She climbed in and snuggled his jet black body. He nearly killed her with the fright, but right now he was warm, furry and safe company. As she drifted off to sleep, she thought of Wendy Williams. Wendy, who 40 years ago had turned up at the clinic bloody, bruised and begging for help. Wendy, who, when turned away, promised to exact revenge on the day she died. Wendy, who died this morning. She pulled Salem closer, and it was in that exact position Evelyn was found dead the following morning by her neighbour, Colin, to let the cat in. Exploding Head Syndrome Imploding by Wren Elizabeth. When Cara first heard her dead grandmother yell her name, she was scared. When she heard pounding on doors only to see no one waiting for her outside, 
She was uneasy. But eventually, Kara realised that the booms and shouts she heard were only in her head. She knew, because she asked that no one else heard the same things. She knew that when the shock of a loud door slam reverberated through her skull, there were actually no doors being shut, no sounds being made outside of her own mind. Or that when a garbled moan, like an underwater scream muffled by an abyss of darkness, made her whip her head around, there was absolutely no gaping mouth from whence the noise came, except the one she imagined. She often cried as she asked who or what was making the sound she heard. Yes, they were in her head. But she heard them clearly, so they had to come from somewhere, right? Did they crawl out from the dark recesses she sunk into when she couldn't stand to process the waking nightmare that was her life? Were they from a place she didn't even know existed, so deep inside her that even if she were to peel back her own layers and muddy herself with sinew and fat to dig them out, they'd still be long buried, forever, out of reach. Kara had considered too that the noises her mind created weren't made up at all, that there were worlds within her with multitudes of beings, and while she plodded through her mundane every day, these things screamed to escape. She contemplated letting them free, for she contained universes, and the pounding at the door to the cosmos was nearly too much to bear. Boating Day by M. E. Proctor Wally was passed out drunk under the collapsed Bimini top. I thought he fixed the Bimini, I said. Marco was rummaging under the central console. He pulled out a length of rope. I did. A cabron managed to rip it off the frame. Good that we weren't going super fast. The whole gear could have ended up in the drink. That fucking moron tried to raise the top while the boat was going. I missed the incident. I was struggling to stay upright on my skis at the end of the tow rope when it happened. First time I tried that stuff. The picture of the flying Bimini gave me a shiver of delayed dread. The contraption could have slammed into me, final destination style. Give me a hand, Marco said. I stood on the bench between Wally's fat legs. Marco balanced on the edge of the boat. After copious sweating, the canvas was tied up, enough to give us shade. It beats down hard on a still July day in the Gulf of Mexico. We'd been fishing an oil rig close to Galveston, caught enough, and decided to have a bit of fun with the skis. Marco's good and I wanted to have a go. The water was so flat it was an invitation. Wally didn't ski. He drank. I feel a nap coming, I said yawning. Marco tossed me a beer. Let's drop the floating anchor. An hour then we head home. He stretched in the pilot seat. I lay on the floor with a stack of life jackets as a pillow. The crunch of boots on dead leaves. My feet didn't make the noise. I wasn't moving. I turned around and there was Dad with the gun resting on his shoulder, smiling. You saw something, 
he said. I wasn't sure. Whatever it is, I don't want to shoot it. Dad put an arm around my shoulders and we walked into the forest. Leaves and falling branches cracked under our feet. Deep in the woods there was a boom, like a tree falling under the axe of a lumberjack. Boom. I woke up. Boom. I rolled off the pile of life vests. The boat was trembling as if it, a hand slapped it. I saw Marco standing in the front. He was looking at the water. The sea was in turmoil. I looked up. The sky was as clear as before. Not a lick of wind. Boom. We gotta go, Marco said. They're gonna crack us. He was pale. What is it? Tiburon. I grabbed my fillet knife and pulled a three-foot wahoo from the live well. I slashed its side. Marco cut off the anchor. He gave me a nod. I swung the fish over the side. I saw fins and teeth in the foaming sea. I think I saw a black eye staring at me for a second. Then we were off. Wally was still snoring. The Haunted Pitch by Jim Ruland. How he died isn't important. Well, actually, it is. Monaghan was up all night drinking and doing blow and his heart exploded 27 minutes into the match. Don't interrupt. You asked for a story and a story is what you'll get. Now the important thing is that it exploded while he was doing what he loved best. Well, hurling, of course. But he did love his Coors Light. Imagine those excruciating 27 minutes before his demise. Running, leaping, striking the ball with his heart, going rabbity and strange and every second wondering if it would be his last. Did he know? I think he did. Pity Monaghan didn't last another three minutes or he'd still be here, keeping Barman in business. He did love the game. That cannot be denied. He loved it something fierce. I'm getting to the ghosty part, don't you worry. Monaghan's passion for the sport was so powerful that those who pass by the pitch late at night swear they can hear the pock, pock, pock of his stick striking the ball. One blustery evening, long after the season was over, a local fellow, yes, it was the butcher, no, it wasn't McAllister's, the one we don't go to anymore since Ma took it to kill. It's not important. The butcher took a shortcut across the pitch and heard the sound of Monaghan warming up. even though the field was empty and the sky was as dark as a dungeon. As our man was crossing the middle of the pitch, he felt something come up against his foot. No, it didn't hurt. It was just a nudge. And when he looked down, he saw a ball at his feet. So he did. He picked it up and gave it a gander. But it wasn't a ball at all, but a mass of skin and hair and teeth that gave the poor fellow, yes, the butcher, a sickening feeling in the pit of his stomach. Well, of course, he was used to looking at bits of meat and bone and other oddments from his work at the butcher shop. But when he looked down to see what it was he held in his hand, 
he beheld an eye beholding him. Monahan's eye. Now I don't need to tell you that. No, just the one eye. It doesn't matter what colour the eye was because it was brown. Yes, like your mother's, the very same. Yes, of course I miss her. Should I do? But she's with Monaghan? No. No, she's... she's No, no, no. She's not at the pitch with Monaghan. She'd have no reason to be there. My eye... There's nothing wrong with my eye, son. They're as dry as... What's this? A tooth in my eye. My toothy eye. Now quit your squealing and get yourself to sleep. Sound of Silence by Stephen McGowan Hi Rita, how's your father? Rita was moving through the market, lost in thought. She turned to the speaker, a small balding man behind a stall of old books. Hi Colin, she said. Dad's his usual self. We're keeping him home, but he's taking a couple of swings at the nurse with his cane. We've got a meeting tomorrow about going into care. Colin's eyes slipped past her, over her shoulder. He frowned. But isn't he there? he said. Rita turned and saw her father hobbling through the crowded market, past the fish stalls, the knock-off clothing stalls and the cheap toy stalls. He didn't react when Rita caught his arm, didn't answer when she called his name. He stared past the stalls, past the crowds, past the docks and the sea beyond. He squinted and held a hand up to his eyes. Dad, Rita said. Dad, we've got to get you home. Her father didn't look at her. He pointed to the sea with his cane, swaying slightly. There, he said. What are you looking at, Dad? asked Rita. He jabbed the cane. There, he said fiercely. What do Rita's words failed. So did everybody else's. The bustling marketplace had become silent. People grasped their throats, opened their mouths wide, but nothing at all came out. Like a wave, they realised that words were not the only things that had lost their sound. The seagulls weren't squawking at forgotten food. The dogs weren't barking at their owners. The sea wasn't lapping at the shore. Rita took the cane from his unresisting hands and hit it against the metal pole above of a stall. Nothing. People ran, they flapped their hands as they did so, screaming silence from useless lips. Rita turned to grab her father's arm again. This time the old man looked at her. He mouthed something to her with urgency in his wild eyes. He shook his arms out of her grasp and knelt, clasping his hands over his ears tightly. He lowered his head to the ground. Rita stood there unsure and scared. She bent to pull him up, and then it hit. A wall of sound that bowled her over. It was almost tangible, like a hurricane that swept through the market. It rattled the stalls and shattered car windows, and suddenly Rita could hear. Every sound that was missing had come back all at once, and it was too much. It grew in intensity, and Rita saw that others were kneeling too and rocking back and forth. Blood was leaking from their ears and nose and lips. She looked at her father. 
He wasn't moving, but rivulets of scarlet flowed from him. Rita looked out to sea. She could feel her bones rattle and her tongue tasted of copper. She raised a hand to her lips. There was blood there. The second wave hit, but no one was left to hear it. Jed by Justin Lee I wake up every morning to Jed looking down on me. The lights are off. The bright screen from a monitor illuminates Jed's grin. He sits down in the chair next to my bed. I think he sits so close so he can tell me things. I don't know how long I've been in this hospital room. Nor do I know why I can't talk. How I wish I could. I think I would just scream. Scream until I can't anymore. Jed leans in close. I'm so lucky to have gotten you assigned to me. You are such a great listener. Jed said as he turned the TV on. Let me tell you what I did to Sally. I've been putting up with so much from her. Do you know what henpecked means? I feel like she has pecked me to damn death and back. Jed stops to drink from the water my nurse brought me and sits the cup back down on my bedside table. So today was the day. I sold her. He laughs. I mean, straight up put her on back page and sold her to some fella from Gainesville. I just told him to come get her while I was out. Thank God for that. Thank God for you too. Jed sits back in his chair. He is still smiling. I haven't felt anything from my neck down in a while. I felt cold everywhere. When are they getting you out of here? Is it because of your tongue or your foot? He chuckled a bit as he rose out of the chair. I guess I should go to the next little lame duck. I don't get to talk to them like I do you. Shame. I only had one chance at this. I jerked both arms forward toward my cup and knocked the water down on the floor. Shit, I didn't know you could do all that. I guess you're going to need some more of that, pal. Jed picked up my cup and walked out of the room. I dragged my hand across the bed toward the phone. I felt like it weighs a hundred pounds. I dial 911 and pray. 911, what is your emergency? I tried to say something, but it just sounded like a moan. Sir, could you please repeat that? I tried again, but this time all I could do was moan louder. The door opened and Jed was standing there. He eased the door shut and walked to my bed. He hung up the phone. Why would you do a stupid thing like that? Jed said. His eyes never leave mine. Now what am I supposed to do with you? He is standing over me. Again. 
His grin is bigger now than I have ever seen. He grabbed a pillow from the foot of the bed and held it over my face. My body convulsed. The last thing I heard was, Your daughter is going to love that Gainesville boy. Ghost in My Spleen by Serena Jane The exorcist hung up on me once I'd explained that I didn't need to evict a ghost in a machine, but rather to expel the ghost in my spleen. Unfortunately, the possessed body part wasn't a popular one. Not a heart, not a hand, not a larynx, not a leg. The signs were subtle. No rattling chains or cold spots or spontaneous combustion. I didn't speak in tongues or float or dream of slaughtering my siblings. Instead, something inside me released a phantom gurgle, and my will to leave the bed fled. No pill, perk or prize could stop the sadness, sinking me ever deeper into despair. An internet rabbit hole brought me to the belief systems of long-dead doctors concerning humours. Body fluids that affected health, personality and mental disposition. Surely some sneaky spectre converted my spleen into a merriment-murdering black bile factory. With the exorcist a bust, I sought home remedies to reduce black bile and bring my body into balance. I guzzled green tea and cranberry juice, avoided alcohol, processed foods, caffeine. I burned sage, filled my humidifier with holy water and religiously followed the directions on the supersized container of spleen salvation cleanse. The ghost clung tight. My insides liquefied and I seemed to spew corruption from every orifice. I swore and begged and thrashed. I convulsed. I cried. And after 16 hours of torment, I was certain I died. Maybe I hallucinated or went a bit mad. I swear I spied the wraith. A flimsy wisp of white floating like dandelion fluff. Sweaty and covered in crud, I dragged the bag of bones my skin suit held to the shower. Neither the water beating my body nor the citrus scent of soap made me feel better. In a fit of pique, I banished every tea leaf, every sage stick, every drop of blessed water, every granule of spleen cleanse. The ghost was gone, along with all signs of our struggle. Yet I remained a wreck. Despite my exhaustion, I googled the other cardinal humours and discovered more ghosts to blame for my shortcomings. My out-of-control internet shopping and late-night snacking habits signified an imbalance of blood due to a liver spirit. Sloth-like sluggishness spoke to a phantom kicking up a plethora of phlegm in my lungs. The anger and aggression that sparked at the simplest slight meant a ghoul in my gallbladder, doggy paddled in a pool of yellow bile. Relieved, I slouched on the couch and chain-smoked. In between puffs, I chowed on cheese, sucked down shots of booze, binge-bought QVC bling and social media stalked every single ex.
Soon my menthol-scented smoke ring summoned a brand new batch of spectres. A drunk-dialed exorcist. Got more ghosts, I slurred. Having a haunted house party and you're not invited. This time, I hung up on him. Dawning of the Knuckle Duster by Andrew Davy. What the fuck was that noise? Someone yelled from behind me. The singer had thrown the microphone to the ground. It sounded like gunfire. The van damned had just finished a blistering song, which had revved up the crowd and sent them to each other like particles in a collider. Now it was over and everyone looked around confused, their orgy of sound and fury cut short. Fucking great set, huh? Some kid with an I've got VD t-shirt said, and wiped blood from his nose. He had a medically induced thousand yard stare and a crooked smile. Oh yeah, you've got to love the, the sturm and drang, I said. The kid gave me the once over and I felt the heat radiate from his body. He wiped his nose again. His eye twitched slightly. You sure you're supposed to be here? Before I could answer, the next band, High Yield Bombs, had already begun to play the first riff from punching through a mountain with our bare fists. A kid bolted forth into the maelstrom of bodies at the centre of the ballroom. I remained on the outskirts of the circle but could just see enough through the zoetrope of flailing limbs. The kid with the bloody nose and the I've Got VD shirt was spit out of the circle, saw me and ambled over with a few new bruises. He still had the medically induced thousand-yard stare. Fucking great set, huh? He said and spat blood on the ground. The next and final song was their foray into sludge metal. Much like how Black Flag had been influenced by bands like St Vitus, high-yield bombs were testing the waters. The kids in the crowd who wanted a faster tempo funneled outside of the circle. Before the kid with the bloody nose and I could continue our Abbott and Costello routine, he had re-entered the melee. The music swelled to a fever pitch and the circle converged on itself like a dwarf star imploding. For the first time that evening, I saw true fear register. The kid stopped moving and looked for an exit but the circle had closed behind him. He tried to climb out over the wave of bodies and yelled something profane. Hands reached out from beneath him, gripped his shoulders and pulled him down. It had been reminiscent of any of the Living Dead movies in which an overconfident anti-hero meets their end. The crescendo hit with a furious double-kick drum and the song finished. Thank you, the lead singer said. That was Dawning of the Knuckle Duster. Have a good night. The musicians unplugged their instruments and there was a brief piercing wail of feedback. I quickly scanned for the kid with the bloody nose, but he was gone. He'd been completely swallowed up and possibly transported to another dimension, like the villains from Krypton who'd been sentenced to the Phantom Zone. Margot Stillings is a storyteller, cocktail napkin poet and photographer. She is a reader slash editor at Rothenyaw Press 
on an absolutely ridiculous human being. Lorraine Murphy is the author of a psychological thriller entitled Into the Woods and many published flash fiction stories. She loves to take everyday situations and twist them, then twist them again. As a teenager, she adored Stephen King and later found herself on the jury of Ireland's longest murder trial. She lives in Westmeath, Ireland with her husband Brendan and three taller children. Wren Elizabeth, she, her, enjoys exploring various themes in this form of short fiction. Find her work and follow her journey on Twitter at Wren Elizabeth. Emmy Proctor is currently writing a series of contemporary detective novels. The first book in the series, Street Song, will come out from Touchpoint Press in 2023. Her short stories have been published in Vautrin, Bristol Noir, Pulp Modern, Mystery Tribune, The Bookend Review, Shotgun Honey and others. She lives in Livingston, Texas. Twitter at MEProctor3. Jim Ruland is the LA Times best-selling author of Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SSD Records. He also co-authored My Damage with Keith Morris, the founding vocalist of Black Flag, Circle Jerks and Off, and Do What You Want with Bad Religion. Ruland has won awards from Reader's Digest and the National Endowment for the Arts, and his work has appeared in many magazines. His new novel, Make It Stop, which will be published by Rare Bird Books in April 2023. Stephen McGowan is an emerging poet and author from the North East UK. He is currently studying creative writing as a mature student at Northumbria University. He is yet to be published for his fiction. His poetry has been published by the university's On Edge magazine. Justin Lee lives in East Tennessee with his wife and two sons. He is an ex-correctional officer and is working towards becoming a social worker. His writing has appeared in Punk Noir magazine and Reckon Review. Born under the sun sign of Leo, Serena Jane is naturally a cat person. Her flash fiction has appeared in The Arcanist, Ghost Parachute, Gone Lawn, Lost Balloon, Shotgun Honey and other publications. Her short story collection, Necessary Evils, was published by Unnerving Books. She tweets at sj underscore writer. Andrew Davy has worked in theatre, finance and education. He taught English in Macau on a Fulbright grant and has survived a ruptured brain aneurysm and subarachnoid hemorrhage. He is currently pursuing a clinical medical health counselling degree. He has published short stories at various places, a memoir, an essay collection and crime fiction books with all due respect, close to the bone, Alien Buddha Press and Next Chapter. His work can be found in links on his website andrew-davy.com. <laughs>